and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hello, legends. I can't believe we're this close to Christmas already. I always get so nervous saying that in case you're someone who hasn't even looked at the calendar lately and I've just increased your breath and your heart rate. I want to invite you all to spend some time this week just reflecting on how do you want to show up for yourself at the end of this year, at the end of 2023? What is one word you want to use to describe yourself? And how will you live into that word? Okay, are you ready for this episode today? It is one of those big ones. What a story. Just for the record, Jen and I had never met, had never had a conversation before when we both jumped in today and literally chatted for three minutes, then hit record, and neither of us knew where this conversation would go. As the next few minutes unfolded, there was a connection that you will hear and pick up on and the next hour literally flew past. All of a sudden, we were like, whoa, we've gone over time. Jen takes us on a journey from her teenage years through her drug addiction, homelessness, prison time, what it truly means to thrive after surviving. We talk about when she was held hostage, what steps actually made a difference in her recovery. I absolutely loved her comment, there is nothing authentic about me but my attitude. She was referring to a chapter in her life and man, this girl has an attitude. Jen is fierce, determined and an unstoppable human. We were so into the conversation that we didn't even speak about what life looks like now for Jen. She is a multiple business owner, best-selling author, award-winning speaker and lifestyle recovery coach. I will pop all of her information in the show notes, but I want to, before we begin, just highlight a trigger warning for this episode. We discuss drug addiction, hostage situations, and psychosis, and this may not be the right episode for you today, so please skip it and we will see you next Monday with bells on. And remember, Lifeline is always here to listen on 13, 11, 14 if you want to talk things through. Hold on tight for this episode. I hope you have your cup of tea or a long walk ahead of you. Let me introduce you to Jen Henry. Hi, Jen. Welcome to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you for coming on this afternoon. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Jen, I love to start every episode just so the guests can kind of get to know you a little bit. And also for me, right? Like this is the first time you and I have met and I always get so intrigued with this question. I would love to know from you, what animal best describes you and what is it about that animal in particular? It's interesting because I wasn't sure if we needed to for sure have a real animal. And what first came to my mind was a phoenix. 
right? It was just so obvious to me. One, because I'm a Scorpio and like we have three stages, a scorpion, an eagle, and a phoenix. And I have been reborn throughout my life at least once, if not multiple times. And then I asked my fiance this question because I was like, if there was an animal that you would describe me as, what would that be and why? And he said, well, the first thing that came to my mind was like a lioness because you're so fierce and sometimes a little more than you need to be maybe, but you're so protective and loyal and loving to your pride, to your family, to your friends and your people. And so I just was like, oh, I'm going to share that. I love that. Yes, (laughs) I'll take it. Yes. And just going back, did you say a scorpion turns into an eagle? So with Scorpio, with that astrology sign, there are three, there are three phases and there are three phases that go with that. Right. And so at the first part of the Scorpio's life, it's a scorpion, right? Very hard, protective shell. And then it turns into an eagle and evolves to an eagle. And then it evolves to the Phoenix that is then reborn again. And the process has started over. I just found that so interesting. And I learned that very young and I've always kind of held on to that and kind of paid attention at times to where I am in that journey. This is why I love the podcast so much because I guaranteed within the first five minutes of interviewing someone, I learned something new every time. (laughs) So Jenna, it might be a nice place to start is, you know, because we've got a bit of time together here today. Maybe the place to begin is right back at the beginning. You know, where did your story start? If we're going to start at the beginning, I would definitely say that I had a really abundant childhood. I had everything that a girl could want, let alone need. I had both of my parents. They were both married. They are still married. They just celebrated 41 years of marriage. And I had horses. I lived on a dirt road and I didn't know what it was to want. However, you know, I did have a mom who was very meek in a sense of very people pleasing, always needed to try and say the right thing, show up in the right way. If she was going to show up, if she was going to be seen, uh, cause she grew up needing to be barely seen and definitely not heard. And then there was my dad who was a <laughs> total alpha male, you know, used car salesman cowboy. And he was the epitome of all of those things. And he he was just very like, you could be anything you want to be. You could be better than anyone or you could do anything anyone else can do, but better. And you just, he was very like Tony Robbins ish. And my mom was very, I don't know, not (laughs) the opposite of that. And, (laughs) and she really struggled with me. My mom really struggled with me growing up because I was so much, I am very passionate about absolutely anything and everything, but whether it be good or bad. And I made her nervous. I kind of scared her if I'm going to be honest. And she's admitted that to me. And I, she, when I remember one time I was talking to her and she said, you know, we used to get along so well. And I said, well, what happened, mom? What happened? And she said, well, you learned how to talk. I thought, well, shit, (laughs) what do you do with that? Right? Like, what do you do? Like, I was just always too much for her. And so I thought that meant that I was just too much. And, and, and I grew up really not knowing who I was really always kind of being uncomfortable in my own skin, really not thinking before I acted, just doing, and then figuring it out along the way. And, you know, when, and I was very, I was probably too smart for my own good. And, you know, I went through elementary school and in fifth grade, I was testing the taking the John Hopkins university test here in the U S and I got the top 3% in the nation on that. So they took some of us up North and we tested again and I got the top 2% of that. And so I was testing post high school, which is like college level in fifth grade. And then in seventh grade, my, you know, parents decided that I should go to public school because that private school ended and I was bored out of my mind and I could not 
sit still. I could not not answer people's questions. I could not stand that there were kids in the in the classroom asking multiple repeated questions when the teacher had already said it. And it was just, I, I just could not stand being in that room anymore. And so I'd go hang out in the bathroom and the other kids that were hanging out in the bathroom, you know, they were bored too, but for different reasons. But what they had learned was the art of the escape. And so that's what I was able to learn from them was they, I started, you know, smoking cigarettes in sixth grade, seventh, eighth grade, I started smoking weed, you know, and by ninth grade, I had already started messing around with things like acid and ecstasy. And by 10th grade, I was doing Coke at every party I went to. And then by 11th grade, I'm set by 16 years old, I found methamphetamines and crystal meth. And it took over my entire life. It became every part of me. It took away everything from me, including my, any sense of self whatsoever. And I really didn't have any sense of self to begin with, which is why I ended up in this situation in the first place was because I just wasn't okay in my own skin. And that was the only thing that drugs, any kind of escape was the only thing that really made it to where I was, if you call it, okay. Okay. And for the first time in my life, I stopped caring, right? I just didn't care anymore because I had cared so much. And when that happened, I ended up being, you know, you end up in psychosis. You end up, I ended up in psychosis. I ended up homeless on the streets with a needle in my arm. I was picked up multiple times to take into the mental health hospitals. Eventually at 18, I was arrested and it saved my life. And when I was released, it was upon contingencies that I would go to a rehab and do these things. And, and I ended up staying sober, clean and sober and in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous for four years. And during that time, I got into a relationship with a man who I was, you know, in a very unhealthy relationship with, and he had become the reason, right? And so when he relapsed and got someone else pregnant, I didn't have a reason anymore. And the rooms, you know, they were supposedly there for me, but all they had really taught me the rooms I'm speaking of AA and NA. And let me just preface this with, I appreciate that there are countless people that the rooms have helped. And I am not saying that they didn't help me at all. What I'm saying is that I still had no sense of self at the end of four years after working the steps multiple times with multiple different sponsors, having sponsees myself, being of service, showing up at meetings, having commitments, doing all the things, reading from the big book and like the different readings, the 12 step books and things like that. Yeah. I had read all of the literature that the program had to offer. And yet I still wasn't grasping who I was still didn't know who I was. And that really came down to what I didn't know I needed. And when I found out that he got someone else pregnant, I of course relapsed. I went back out. I ended up, you know, with a needle back in my arm. And within a year I was arrested again and ended up doing my first term in prison. When I got out, I was worse than I was when I went in. And I was only out a few months before I was rearrested and went back to prison. Whew, a story and a half. And for you, it's, you know, it's your story. So it's like, whoo, straight through. But I guess for me, as I sit here and listen to that, I'm still back at the middle school. You know, I'm still back at, in the bathrooms. I hear this so often when young people, when intellect meets boredom, <laughs> like it's a scary space, right? And boredom in particular when with teenagers, it's when often we see behaviors, people acting out, things start to go south. And then like you said, it set you on a track that just you beelined, you know, you just, or A-lined, like you just went straight down that road and, and did it so well, because by the sounds of it, anything you commit to, you commit to well. 100% all the way without a doubt. Mm, mm. 
And so the part that going right back to even school, the part that sat there for me was what did it look like around you? Like did people try and intervene? Did they notice? Did anyone try and, I don't know, like say anything, do anything, or were you just like hands off, I'm just going for this and and no one can stop me? As much as I hate to admit it, everybody tried. Everybody Mm. tried, but I was so strong-willed. I was so... It was the only thing that made me okay. How are they going to take, they can't take this away from me. They can't tell me what to do. You know, one thing I didn't mention is that as much as my parents loved me, they loved me by saying yes. Mm. And so I took it as if you tell me, no, you don't love me. And there were no consequences because as a child that gets that kind of love and attention and gifts and really I was spoiled. Right. And I see it so much today, especially here in the States. These parents are this gentle parenting and they're going to figure it out on their own. Yeah, we're going to figure it out on our own, but that might be what it looks like as a result. Because when the world started telling me, no, I didn't handle it well. And I was going to learn one day. Unfortunately, it had to be from the judge Hmm. because my parents had no consequences for me growing up. They enabled everything. And if my mom wanted to say no, my dad was like, hey, she's going to do what she's going to do. Or if my dad wanted to say no, it was vice versa. And there really wasn't any, not only were there no consequences, but when the child is handed everything, how did they learn to work for something? How do they, I mean, I had chores and I had responsibilities, but that didn't contribute towards that. Like I didn't put it together in my mind that I get these things as a result of these chores, right? We had horses, I had to muck stalls. I had to feed them. I'd be up at the crack of dawn to do that. I had to feed before it got dark at night. I had to, right. I had to dust, I had to vacuum, I had, you know, but when it came down to it, the minute I was able to stand up to my mom, I did. And she'd say things like, Jennifer, clean your room. And I'd say, well, it's my room. I'm going to leave it how I want it. And she'd say, yeah, but it's in my house. And I would say, well, then you clean it. There was just no, no consequences. Yeah. And when you think back through that time, still in high school, do you think anyone could have said anything or done anything? Like it sounds like when you just said that there were lots of people that were aware of what was going on, but could anyone have stood in front of you and said, maybe we should go a different way? They tried. The schools tried. I ended up getting kicked out of high school. I didn't graduate my senior year because of this. My parents tried calling the cops. The cops wouldn't do anything. My parents, of course, ended up having to kick me out for their own safety because I was bringing people into their house, their home that were unsafe for them and for me, but mostly for them, right? Obviously, I was doing things that were unsafe for me. And I mean, we had neighbors, my friend's parents, people that loved and cared about me really, really tried, but there was just... There was nothing that they could do at that point because it was just too late. And in hindsight, when you look back, is there anything that you think they could have done? Like, I guess... Started earlier. Yeah. And what would that have started earlier looked like? No. Telling me no. Not handing me everything just because I threw a fit. Letting me have my tantrum and work through it and figure it out. And so after school, you said that you ended up on the streets. What did that, are you able just to talk us a little bit around what that looked like for you and what that word means for you? Because I know the word homelessness means something different to everyone. And some people think about the word homelessness literally means sleeping under a bridge. But I say to people, no, you can be couch hopping. You can have a roof over your head every single day and still be homeless. So I did not have a roof over my head. People would not let me in their home. I was living in my cars until, and I say cars multiple because my parents would, my dad would replace the car. If like, for example, I was living in my car on the street and then I 
was carjacked and I was left naked on the side of the road with nothing, beat half to death. And I had to walk my way to a payphone because we still had payphones at the time. And I sat underneath it until someone showed up at like four thirty, five o'clock in the morning getting gas. An older Mexican man came and gave me his jacket and let me use his phone. And I had someone come and pick me up. And so I stayed at her house for a few days until I wasn't allowed to stay there anymore. And then I called my parents and I told them I wanted to get clean, which I did multiple times throughout the course of this. And then they would take me in, I would get to shower, I would get to eat. And then the next thing I knew, I wanted to go get high again. And so I'd leave. And I, sometimes they would let me take their car and then they, they would end up without a car because I would get it stolen or I would leave it somewhere and forget where I left it. I mean, it was, it was bad. It's one of those things where it wasn't until they finally cut me off completely that I was able to truly suffer the consequences of my own actions. Oh, I just, as a parent, I'm just sitting here thinking, oh, it's such a challenging spot, right? For you and for them. There's no right answer in that moment, you know? There's not. Yeah. And so during that time, what would your worst day look like, would you say? Oh, being held hostage. I mean, that's, you know, that was a, it was there. I was held hostage the day before the day of and the day after Christmas one year. I was, God, I can't even tell you. I remember walking the streets completely in psychosis in LA and walking in the middle of the road, walking on the freeway, in the middle of cars, urinated on because I would just not have any control anymore. I was just completely disgusting having not showered. I was be completely out of my mind having not eaten or slept in weeks at a time. I really was the walking dead. I was the girl that you saw losing your mind on the side of the street and you walked the other side of the street so you don't have to potentially come in contact with her. And you said you were held hostage. I was. I had been driving around at one of the dealers of the neighborhood, helping him deliver to his customers all night. And then at the end of the night, he had stayed at one of the houses for a few hours, if not longer than that. And I remember waking up with him getting in the car and we drive back to the place where we had been kind of squatting at. And his dealer came by unexpectedly and asked where the drugs were. And he blamed it on me, told me that I had stolen them. And so they proceeded to strip search me and cavity search me and burn me with cigarettes and lighters and then leave me naked in a room with a bucket for three days. I'm like listening, thinking why am I asking these questions? But I think it's a really, really important that we understand how, how it looks. How bad it can really get when you are completely completely disconnected. And that's really what it came down to is it wasn't the drugs. It wasn't anything other than me being completely disconnected from that deep, deepest, highest part of myself. And yeah. it wasn't until I connected to that, that I was able to make a change. Yeah. And do you think you were aware of it at the time? Do you think you were aware of the situation you were in, how dangerous was, what way you were headed? Not at all. Not in the least bit. I was, if anything, the opposite of scared. I was almost proud of the life I lived. I wore it as a badge of honor. I thought that I was hard. I thought that I was, I don't know. I just took pride in the life I was living. Jen, and you mentioned psychosis. Now, we don't get the opportunity very often to sit with someone who's so, I guess, in a position where they're ready to tell their story and wanting to tell their story. And I thought it might be really helpful for our listeners and for me and for you just to have a conversation around psychosis in itself, especially drug-induced psychosis. 
Absolutely. So there is absolutely a huge difference, right, between being born with schizophrenic tendencies and being diagnosed as schizoaffective. And the difference in that is that when you have been dehydrated for days upon days upon days, when you've been starving for weeks, when you've been up and not sleeping for weeks at a time, you absolutely develop psychosis as a result of this. You don't know who you are. You don't know what's going on around you. You start to hear things that may, that other people cannot hear. You start to see things that other people cannot see and you start responding to these things. And while I personally believe that the veil had been dropped at that point, right? I'm a little bit woo. And so I do believe that when you're walking dead like that, you are absolutely exposed to the things that other people cannot see, but it's a mix between that psychosis and like what you're actually believing is there, what is actually there and what, you know, you imagine is there. And so it was definitely a place of imagination. It was a place of not being able to comprehend the world around me the same way that you and I can comprehend the world around us today. And was it scary for you when you were in those psychosis? I probably was too nuts to recognize that I was nuts, right? Mm. I was just not okay. I was so out of my mind that it just was what it was. There was no fear. There was no feelings. That was the thing. I didn't feel any kind of way about anything. That was the whole point. To think that you did this year upon year blows my mind. Like, I can hear it as you're talking around that when we talk about homeless, you are homeless in your body and in your mind. Absolutely. For a long time. Like what kind of stretch are we talking about here? On and off for about 10 years, for 12, yeah. 13 years. And you said you mentioned also when you started at the beginning around ending up in prison. You said that there was, you know, you'd been arrested first and then you went to rehab and then you ended up in prison. Are you able to tell us a little bit about that chapter of your life? When I was arrested the first time I went to prison, I had already been arrested multiple times and was out on bail when I got picked up. And I was actually out on bail twice in two different cities. So I was out on bail in Riverside, California, and I was out on bail in Orange County, California. And when I finally got picked up, there was no way they were letting me bail out because it's a bail on bail crime. It's, it's a big deal here. And I'm sure it's a big deal everywhere, but I, I just didn't care. And when I got picked up the first time I was scared, I didn't know what to expect because I'd never been to prison and I knew that that's what was coming. And I was facing, I think I was facing around five or six years and I ended up getting 16 months with halftime right? For good behavior. And so I ended up doing eight months and 20 days that first round. And I got to meet all of the lifers and I got to meet all of the hardcore criminals, we'll say, right? And I got to know the people who cycled in and out of this system. And those people, because I was living with them for eight months and because I was so susceptible at this point to anything, right? I was like a sponge at this point because I'm finally clean and clean at this point. I'm in prison and I didn't know how to get drugs. I didn't know how to get the things that other people were getting. While I did follow their programming, I still was almost proud that when I walked out of there, now I'm a felon, right? I'm on parole. And there was this badge of honor that I got to wear as a result of that. I was this hardcore criminal now. And what's so funny is nowadays, the laws that we have in place are such a joke that I was recently talking to a younger woman and she's been arrested 14 times for drugs and still does not have a felony, still has not gone to prison. Wow. 
again, no consequences. And that part of me was the result of no consequences. And now California is the result of no consequences. And the life that everyone has, like what's going on here right now is the result of no consequences. Yeah. And so when I got out, I was absolutely worse than I went in because I had all this new knowledge and I had all this new extreme, even more extreme of this way of life. And I was only out a few months. And I've obviously, I still didn't learn any coping skills. I still didn't know who I was. I still, I thought I did, but I didn't. And so I had no other way to deal with anything. And so when I found out my parents were losing my childhood home, I went right back out. I I couldn't deal with that. There was, what do you mean you're, I'm losing everything. What do you mean? I'm not going to be able to, uh, you know, be home. You guys said I was coming home. This isn't home. I'm not moving to some city, like some house in Moreno Valley or Paris or any surrounding city near us. That's not my home. And I said, I'd rather be on the streets than live anywhere but here. And then I got up and left and I went back out and I ran for just a couple months and was hanging with the same old people in a hotel room and they got the cops called to the hotel room and I was arrested again and taken and put on a parole hold. So I was again, not able to bail out. And there was a minimum of one year that I needed to serve. And I ended up serving 17 and a half months on that sentence. So why, how, who... (laughs) When, how are you sitting here in front of me now? Like, you know, the story you're telling me, like you put badass to a whole new perspective, right? Like I'm sitting here listening to you thinking how you survived that 10 years, I don't know. And you've said that, you don't know, you were walking dead, but there would have been so many situations that were so dangerous beyond anything I can imagine that you would have been in that you walked away from. But you're sitting here now on our podcast challenges that change us and talk me through from that moment to now, like how in 25 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I will absolutely like really hone in on the most important pieces that I think were the game changers. And so first of all, when I got arrested this time, like I had been to prison, I knew the game. I knew what I could get away with. I knew what I needed to do in order to be okay in there. And I still had all my drugs on me. I got arrested for everything that was in the hotel room because the hotel room was in my name, but all of my stuff was on me, which is my needle and my drugs. And so while the cops were messing with all the other people that were in the room, I simply tucked away my drugs for in what we call our purse. If you're thinking what, like think tampon, like that's where we put it and hide it. And so I put that away and went through the whole process, knowing I was going to be fine for at least a few days while I was in there. I was at least going to get to my shampoo and body wash and, and food and snacks and things. Because when you first get there, you get nothing. You're lucky if you get a toothbrush and a comb. So I got arrested, went through the process, got it put in my cell and I waited a little while, got to know my bunkie a little bit, ended up sharing with her what I had. She knew all the right people. I was able to get the stuff I needed. And she and I would, you know, hang out and party together. And then it ran out. It ran out. Right. And so when I'm coming down off of drugs, uh, probably like most other people, I'm not the most pleasant person to be around. I don't have any patience. I don't have any tolerance. I don't have any fake kindness to show you. And I started a fight with my bunkie. We had gotten into it and I cussed at her and I spit at her and she just grabbed me and threw me across the cell into the corner and then threw a Bible at me. And she said, you need God, bitch. And so she got in her bunk and rolled over and I grabbed the Bible and I threw it up in my cubby and I cussed her out some more and I got up in my bunk and I fell asleep. I woke up, God knows when later, it was the next day or a few days later. And she wasn't in the cell. And I look out that it's a little clear window through a metal door and we call it the wicket. And I looked out the wicket 
and I saw everyone at day room. And so I knew that was my chance. I put the wicket cover up and I got the needle at down. I didn't have any drugs left, but I still had my needle. And I started to see if there was anything left in the chamber. And so I would pull blood and then push it back in and then fill the chamber with blood and push it back in, just trying to maybe rinse anything out, maybe get any residuals. But really what it was is I was more addicted to the needle and the idea of the escape than I was any drug. And I'm sitting there under my blanket, injecting, pulling blood in and out of my ankles, trying to find anything I can, uh, as means of, of comfort or escape. And the next thing I know, I'm staring at myself. And I had never really ever, it had been years since I looked, if ever looked at myself in the mirror at my actual face. I mean, I could do my face makeup without ever looking at myself, right. Without ever looking in my truly looking in my eyes and seeing me. And I didn't mention this, but I had terrible, severe cystic acne all over my jawlines, all over my forehead, all over my cheeks. And I was a freak and people made me feel as such. And it wasn't until this moment that I ever actually looked at myself. I was outside of my body and I can see myself sitting there and I see this girl and she, her face is gaunt. She looks dead. Like she's barely existing. And I just thought, Oh my God, what are you doing? Like Jen, like what honey? And there's just this overwhelming sense of like pity and compassion and, and feet and like, just, Oh, you poor thing. And then the next thing I know I'm back in my body and all the pain came back and I didn't even realize it had been gone until I was back in my body and all the feelings and all the disgust and all the everything. And I, I'm so tripped out by this experience, right. That I look up to see like, who, what was that? And I look up in the corner to where the view was that I'd been looking at myself from and that Bible sat in that shelf. So I get up, take, throw my blanket off, get up, grab the Bible, open it up. And I turn to a page where it said something along the lines of gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and rest in assurance that your faith in God will restore you to sanity. Now I've never been a religious person. I'm still not a religious person, but that in that moment, I just knew that I knew that I knew that I was going to be okay. That all of a sudden I wasn't alone, that no matter what was there with me, that I wasn't alone. And I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know where to go from there, but I just knew that like, I was going to be okay. Like I was still here for a reason, whether I liked it or not. And so what was I going to do about it? And I just burst into tears, hyperventilating, sobbing. I still get chills when I think about this because it was in that moment that I was able to actually connect to that highest version of myself, that part of me that knew exactly why I was here. That part of me knew that knew that was with me the entire time I'd been through everything I was on going through on the streets. The part of me that was like, all right, Jen, come on, if we're going to do this, let's do it. But come on, you know, and, you know, for the beginning of my journey, I thought that that was, I, I used Christianity as a way to connect to that part of me. And as I started to grow in my own spiritual journey, and this may be blasphemous to some, but this is my story. And I found myself connecting much more to the Buddhist religion, if you're going to call it a religion, which I wouldn't. And I realized that I am the one, right? We are the ones that host that highest version of ourselves. We are the ones that host the spirit. And why are we looking outside of ourselves to praise something when that peace of God is inside of us, right? And when we can connect that peace of God or that spirit or that soul or that energy, which I consider God to be energy, when I connect to that energy inside of me, that highest frequency that I could possibly imagine, and I ask her for her advice and her opinion and what it is that that part of me wants for myself, that's when I get the right answers. That's when I know what I need to do. That's when I, when I tune in and connect, consciously connect, that is what, 
changed everything. Now I didn't all of a sudden turn, like, I would love to say that all of a sudden everything changed and I was clean and sober from that day on. And I've never done anything wrong and everything has been perfect, <laughs> but that's just not reality. Right. I may, we, we are, we may be spiritual beings, but we are having a human experience. And so I had to learn how to stay connected. And what I learned was that when I am disconnected from that, I don't make good decisions. I make shit decisions actually. And so I find myself now today, 13 years later, I find myself uncomfortable with this connection. And so I have to purposely do it. I have to purposely turn on some kind of mindless TV show or purposely go out and, you know, do something to purposely disconnect because I still drink. I do absolutely use THC, but I don't use them to disconnect. I use them to connect. Like sometimes I have a difficult time connecting with others. And so as a result of that, to having a drink with them helps me to connect. It helps me to be social. It helps me to like get outside of myself and be a little softer and not be so rigid and so safe all the time. And I've learned how to have that balance in my life. And, you know, and so over the last 13 years, I've really had the opportunity to dissect these pieces of my life, these turning points, these pillars where, what was it that was different for me? How come I'm still out here? How come I'm still thriving? How come I can have multiple businesses? How come I can have a six figure income? How come, you know, I can write this book? How come I can become a bestseller? How come I can award winning speak and win awards and do these things? And it's because I am constantly connecting to that highest part of myself. And it's because, so what I did was I developed a framework that I went through and that now I take my clients through. And it all started with that moment in that cell because it's everything. Connection is everything. It is not uncommon to hear what you spoke about then in that moment is something happens and it's really hard to kind of define it, isn't it? It's really hard to say this is what happened or this, but something shifts in a moment, whether it be like you said, seeing words on a page, whether it be seeing something in the sky, whether it be having a conversation. But so often when I'm sitting with people and their stories, there's this defining moment. And the thing that I hear over and over again is that this is not the life I want to live and there's something else out there. But you said the words, I didn't know how, I didn't know what, it didn't just happen, but there was something in that moment that shifted in you fundamentally. Absolutely. And it was this knowing. Yeah. I just all of a sudden had this knowing that there was a reason. And I think growing up, you know, when I look back, I always thought like, this can't be it. This cannot be it if this is it, like, this is dumb. What are we doing? Because this is, this can't be it. And yet it continued to be that. And I continued to meet these people that were that. And I thought, well, then this is pointless. Mm. Then this is pointless because if this is what there is, I don't want it. And I was on what we call the suicide on the installment plan because I was too scared. I didn't want to live, but I was too scared to kill myself outright. And so I just did whatever I could to, I just didn't care about living anymore. And it wasn't until I made a decision to choose life, right? Like I had to have the knowing that there was a reason I was here. I had to believe that there was a point in choosing life. And it wasn't until that moment that I did, right? And the other part is that the energy it took for you to go down that other road, you then put into this road. Like, I wish we all could just take a moment and think if we just, even if it's around, the stuff we're hanging on to that no longer serves us, if we used all that energy and put it into what we want to do, or like with your story where there was all this energy going into self-sabotage and self-loathing and self-disgust were the words I think you were using. Like when you started to flip that, when you started to say, well, if I use all of that, all those resources that I'm putting into that, into this over here, I wonder what it would look like. 
Absolutely. It's that I have always had that energy. I just didn't know where to focus that energy. I didn't know how to balance that energy. I didn't know how to align that energy with anything. I didn't have a focus. I didn't have a goal. I mean, I remember getting out of prison. So after that experience in the jail cell, when I went back to court, I knew that I knew that I knew that if I just went back to prison, I was still going to get out worse. I may not ever get out. I knew that I would be stuck in this cycle forever. And I knew that something had to be different. And so I actually fought my case just to get a program after, because at the time they were not offering things like that. And so I fought, I got sent to a six month rehabilitation center for women who were trying to integrate back into society, who were trying to get their children back, who were trying to reintegrate. And so that absolutely made every part of the difference. I absolutely uh, don't know what I would have done without that time, that safe space to transition back into my life, because it is where I learned how to be present with self. It's where I learned how to connect because I knew I needed to, I just didn't know how. And I remember being in this group, right? We're in this these groups multiple for multiple, multiple hours a day. They're trying to teach me like cognitive behavioral therapy and all these different things. And they were asking me things like, where do you see yourself in a year? If you could wave a magic wand and have anything you wanted. And I'm thinking, I, honey, I don't even know what I want for lunch. How are you going to ask me where, what I want in a year? And not only that, looking back now, I'm like, my perception was so skewed around what it could even look like for me. Right. You wouldn't even know what it could look like because you'd never tasted it. Ever. And like, I thought, okay, well, I know what I had horses and I had the family and like that didn't do it for me. Right. I had the money. I had the things. It was a decade ago. And those things didn't do it for me. Right. Like everybody was like, oh, I want a nice car and I want a nice house and I want my family back. And I was like, I didn't want any of that. I wanted me. I wanted to know who I was. I wanted to be okay in my own skin. I wanted to be able to be present in this moment without needing to escape. Mm. That's all I wanted. And so when they asked me these questions, I realized I had to kind of, maybe I had to just like, again, I wasn't fitting in this box that they were trying to fit me in. And the, the, the program and the structures that they used for all these other people weren't working for me. And I was like, I can't keep doing this. I have to figure out what this is for me. And so until I could figure out what I wanted, I had to figure out where I was and who I was and what I was, where I was actually at in my life. It's kind of like, uh, you know, I talk about it being like Google maps, right? You can talk about going to New York or going to Australia or going to Canada all day long. But if you don't know where you're starting from, you don't know how to put the directions together properly. You can't create a strategy to get there. And so all of these Google were saying, you know, create a vision, you know, decide where you want to go and then work backwards. And I'm like, yeah, except I need to know where I'm starting right first before I can even like decide to go left or right. And so that was that first piece for me. I had to decide, you know, who is it that I am in this moment? What is going on in my life at this moment? What is it that I believe is true for myself? How do I identify in this world? And is there something there that I might need to shift in order to create a different life? And the answer is absolutely without a freaking doubt. Yes. I need to change a lot before I try, right? I need to adjust some things, right? The way I was thinking wasn't working, but I kept wanting to connect. I kept wanting to identify with my feelings, but I couldn't because they had me on all of these psych meds. Cause remember I was in a psychosis when I went into jail and into prison and these things. And, and so they had me on, and I was seizing from coming off the drugs and my, I, everything was triggering. And so I was on anti-psychotic medication. I was on mood stabilizers. I was on anti-anxiety medication. I was on antidepressants. So not much and not much, you know, just like six or seven psych meds, no big deal. But what I noticed is that when I would go for a pill call, 
if I say it was Saturday morning and I accidentally slept in because no one comes to wake you, right? This isn't prison. This isn't mom's house. Like no one's coming to wake you. You have to get up on your own. And I wasn't there yet. <laughs> and so by, you know, 11 o'clock, I'd be waiting by the door of the nurse's door because I was detoxing. I was shaking. I was like ill. I was profusely sweating or clammy. And I just knew that I didn't want to get clean to feel like this. And I knew that if I wanted to connect to my feelings, I, if I wanted to connect, be able to identify these things, then I was going to have to, I really needed to start fresh and start from the beginning and start with a blank slate and see from there, if there was any support that I needed medicinally. And, you know, that's a long story, but long story short, my psych doctor actually told me, you know, I appreciate that you wanted to do this, Jen, but it's a stipulation of your parole that you be on this medication. Mm. And so while I respect the law and all it's, parts, whatever, because we need to, that did not sit well with me. And so I told the last biggest lie of my life to that night nurse. When I went back to that rehab and she asked me how it went, I said, it went amazing. And I, she and I were close because she was the night nurse and I was up all night because all day I was numbed out. And then all, all night I was up and I couldn't sleep. And so she and I had a very close relationship by this time. And so she asked me, off the record, you know, how did it go? And I told her, and I started to tell her how we were going to wean down my meds. And she believed me. And I still to this day feel bad about that because I adored her, but I needed to save my own life. I can't believe she believed you. Like, can we just, can we just clarify that you were in a detox unit? (laughs) So they said, I can go off my psych meds. Great. Let's take you off. Well, what it was is I knew my meds enough and I had been doing drugs long enough and things like this, that I was, I tried to be really smart about the way that we were going to be weaning it down. And I made it look like it was going to take, you know, two months to wean myself off. And that's what we did. But I'll tell you what, that first week was a bitch. Okay. And I was coming out of my skin. I was not okay. And that's when I found this treadmill that in the rec room that we all used to hang out in, there was this treadmill and it was old and it's, and it smelled like burning rubber. And it had this horrible screeching noise every time you walked on it. And the girls that were in the rec room. They were not happy about it. This is the downtime when they're like trying to call their family. They're trying to watch their shows. They're trying to play cards or write letters. And I'm in there on this squeaky treadmill. treadmill. (laughs) I'm just going to be here for now, guys. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, give me 30 minutes. Just give me 30 minutes. And I just knew instinctively that I needed to get this energy out. Like I didn't know where I just needed to get it out because if I didn't get on that treadmill, I was going to run out the door and go back to prison because if I I was still a, a ward of the state at that point, right. Until I was released from that, that rehab facility. And And so that started my journey in fitness. And that was the first piece that really helped me to connect. It helped me to be present in my body. It helped me to learn how to breathe. It helped me to learn how to push through things. And so, you know, as the time went on and I got out and I started running and then I started lifting weights and then I started paying attention to my food and I started learning about gut health and I started learning about the mind gut connection. And I started learning how about functional medicine. And I didn't know it in the beginning, but of course, years later, now certified in functional nutrition and these different things, I a hundred percent understand what I was doing. And those are the things that I was missing, right? The pieces of my program that I've created are the gaps that I needed to fill that were in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, the different anonymous programs, because I needed these certain pieces that weren't there. And it was my health and wellness, like actually living a clean life. Like what did that actually look like? And what did it actually look like to learn how to set boundaries? Because as again, I mentioned my whole life, I was everything to everybody. I just wanted you to like me. I had no sense of self. I was whoever you needed me to be so that you were okay. As long as you were okay, I was okay. So I thought, obviously that's not the case. 
right? And so because I became everything for everyone else, that was the thing that I needed to learn how to do was be that for myself first. Mm. And I realized over time that when my cup was full, it could overflow into others. But when my cup was dry, I was of no service to others. I was of no value to anyone else. As much as I wanted to be, I wasn't. And that's what I see with a lot of my parent clients is they want to put the kids first. And I get that. Like I do. And I'm, I've had two miscarriages. I'm not going to go through the IVF and everything I need to do to have kids because I'm too busy raising adults. And when I tell you that you need to put yourself first, I'm not talking about an egocentric way. I'm not talking about in a narcissistic way. I'm talking about be the example. Show your kids how to take care of yourself. Show your kids how to say no and set boundaries. Show your kids how to honor what it is that you need so that they can learn how to honor what they need. Because if you're running on fumes, they are the ones suffering. And there was something that you said earlier, Jen, I know I keep jumping you back. And so there's going to be listeners being like, I'll just let her talk. But there's some really big, like you've just dropped these little gold nuggets along the way. And I just want to like, they're like crumbs that I just want to pick up and ask and explore and understand. And, you know, because your wealth of knowledge and experience is incredible. Like the life that you have lived has given you so much depth of experience of human behavior, of what drives and motivates people from all spectrums, you know, from all walks of life. But there was something you said, and you said it a few times, you said, I needed to know who I was. You said before you could go and start thinking about that future pace, about the vision, you needed to get that starting point. I think you used the word Google Maps and it was like, where am I now? Where am I starting from? And I kept thinking as you were saying that, Oh, how do you work that out? Like when you kept saying, I need to know who I am, it's like, but who were you? Because really the person you were describing was a shell of a human. You know, there wasn't an understanding of what your needs were. There wasn't an understanding that you could feel. There wasn't, it sounds like you were so disconnected, like almost dissociating from your body that that you weren't even in it. So I just, I guess, wanted to ask around that, how did you even begin to explore that even softly, even just nudge it a little bit to start to think, oh, there's something here. There's something alive inside my belly. There's a tiny little flame there. It may not be big yet, but it's it's there. And I'm going to just acknowledge that it to start with. That is such a great question. It really is, Ali. And I think that I, I don't think I've been asked that enough, but what it really came down to was I had to start asking myself those questions. Do you like this? Or are you eating it because I put it in front of you? Do you want to do that? Or how do you really feel about like when you're answering the questions, don't answer them because you think that's what they want to hear. Because that's who I was. That's how I answered things. I would, there was no, nothing authentic about me other than my attitude. Right. And uh, so it started with little things like one, trusting my gut that I needed to get off those meds so I could figure it out. And I did that and trusting myself when I needed to get on that treadmill, even though girls were threatening to fight me trusting myself when I knew that it wasn't about creating the vision quite yet. As far as anything in the future, it was about creating a vision for right now. And like when I mentioned, I needed to learn how to be okay in my own skin. I started asking myself what that looked like. If I was okay, what would that feel like? It's almost like you had to come into the present. It's almost like you had to just, you know, just actually learn how to be in, in my the body. moment. Yeah. That's what I, yeah. Yeah. 
And so that's what I struggled with the most at first. And that's what my clients struggle with the most at first. And I feel like that's the missing piece, right? That's why it's the biggest chapter in the book. That's why it's like, I have all these different tools. That's why I learned how to breathe. I started just being present with my breath. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't at instruction of anybody other than having to be present with my breath, because I would notice that I would just start panicking and I would hyperventilate and not in a noticeable way where I'm actually having a full panic attack. Cause those obviously happened. Absolutely. But it was more of like the... I don't know if you could hear that, but it was literally panting. And I would catch myself panting because I'm not (sighs) breathing. Mm. And I think that that's such a missed thing is that people do not realize that most of their anxiety is stemming from the fact that they're not even breathing. breathing. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. And even just as you took that big breath, for me, it had so many colors to it. Like it was like you fully breathed into it and you fully allowed that breath to escape and to go away and to go out into the world. You know, I could feel that as you were breathing that big, deep breath. And I think some people have never taken a big breath in their whole life. (laughs) You know, they haven't actually sat there and just been like, what does this breath feel like when it's smooth and it's not jagged and it's not short and it's not being forced and it just is. It's a beautiful way of putting it because I had to learn how to just be. Yeah. I had to learn how to sit and just breathe in the moment. And when I started doing that, I started being able to actually look around at the women around me and decide if that is really right. Is that who, cause you are who you're surrounded with. And I was like, Oh shit. Mm. <laughs> oh no. <Uh-oh. laughs> oh no. Like I used to, right. I used to look at these women like, Oh wow. Like, like, yeah, I'm going to fit in with her. And like, we're going to, you know, we're good. Like, I don't know how to explain just the, I feel like there's a huge draw to like the gang life and the street life. It's and connection that kind though. Of prison life. It's connection. It, it is and still being connected to a community. Right. And I felt a part of that community because no one was telling me I was too much. No one was telling me I was not enough. No one was telling me, right. They just suck. We all just sucked. Right. We all just kind of existed. And you had been great and you're great at sucking. Like you did it well. Like you were a badass, like we said, and your words were, (laughs) there was nothing authentic about me, but my attitude, but your attitude was like still 110% the whole way through this story. Absolutely. And that is the one thing I will say is that I think it's my attitude that has given me that little bit extra strength, that little bit extra fortitude, that little bit extra gumption to like, if you don't like it, F you like, cause this is who I am. And it used to be the complete opposite of that. Yeah. But I've worked too damn hard to be something for that. I'm not anymore. Right. It's just, (laughs) I don't have the breath to waste. I don't have the energy to waste. If you don't like me good, that leaves space for other people that will. Yeah. And I'm curious, do you miss aspects of that life? I think that for a while I did. And now it's just so sad to me. It's so sad. It's like truly, it's heartbreaking because I realized that what we believe matters. Like what we believe to be true matters. What we believe about this world matters. What we like take in and claim as ours matters. And I am is the most powerful statement in the human language. It is manifesting. It is, you know, you are calling in those things. And when you say I am like, that's why one of the problems I had with the program as well is I am not powerless. I am not powerless. I may have been powerless over drugs when I was on drugs, but I am not powerless over methamphetamines. Mm. I'm not powerless over the things that I'm until I do them. And that's a completely different scenario. And so I was done saying I'm powerless. I'm absolutely powerful. I'm a different kind of strong. I am capable of anything I put my mind to. Right. And I had to start identifying 
Like, what am I identifying as? And I, for a long time, I identified as someone who was no better than the guys on the streets. I felt like I was staying humble by saying that even well into my recovery. I'm no better than, and I'm not necessarily better than I am different from. I have changed. I've evolved. I have decided to be different and there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that I felt that there was for a long time. I felt like uh, I don't want to, I don't know. I don't want to be this snob who thinks like she's better than everybody now that she's not on the streets anymore. And it's like, I mean, I I think the fear of that keeps you so far from that. Right. And just, it just, it's, it's not a fear that I have anymore. Like I get to be the example now. Yeah. But I was going to say it it would have served you at some points in your life at that time for some reason, there would have been aspects of that that served you. So to let go of it, it's almost throwing the baby out with the bath water. Like I think we don't ever want to completely let go of what we've had and our experiences. You use the word full human experience. It's one of my favorite lines because it's like, are we here for the full human experience? And if we are, it comes in all shapes and colors and all kinds of emotions and the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And, you know, the more you feel and the more you experience, the brighter the the sun gets, the brighter the stars get, the fresher the air gets, the deeper our breath gets. Absolutely. And one thing I will say is that after years, I tried to push that part of me, that 16, 17 year old girl that was homeless and crazy. And I used to try and push her out of me and deny her and say, Mm. you know, I'm not her anymore. She's not a part of me anymore. And I was actually doing some work with a client, long story short, and she started coming up in a visualization exercise. And I started seeing this little dirty girl running around in this, you know, huge, beautiful scene that my client was visually uh, sharing with me. And I just thought, oh my God. And so I called my coach. I'm like, we have some work to do because she's showing up and I don't know what to do with it. And she had me go back into that visualization, take her hand, put her Um, on my lap, peed on and all, and love her and let her know that she was loved and that she is safe and that she doesn't need to sabotage. Like she doesn't need to do these Mm. things to try and keep me safe anymore, that she is safe and that I Mm. have her. And so I built a relationship with that part of myself and she is welcome at the table. Every time I have a community meeting inside my head and all of the parts of me now that have gone through all of the different things in my life, they are all welcome at the table. They just aren't running the show anymore. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you said that because one of the questions I wanted to ask you was what happens when it vibrates now, but that's almost, I'd imagine the answer is that you actually can acknowledge it and sit with it and and nurture the part of you that's coming up. But what exactly what you said, it doesn't run the show anymore. And I think that's really important. She needs to have her own space so that Mm. she doesn't feel the need to fight for it. Mm. And this is that inner child work for anyone that's like, what are you guys talking about? Because you two have just gone off on a tangent. This is inner child work. So if you've (laughs) never experienced it before and you've never done any of this work, like you are missing out because we all have an inner child. We all have these parts of us that need us to love ourselves and to show nurture to ourselves. And when you started this story, Jen, at the very beginning, you said you didn't know how to love yourself. You didn't know how to turn that inwards. That wasn't your words. But this is, and then we're finishing with, this is how I did it. Absolutely. Jen, we have spoken about decades in a very short time, like 45 minutes. We have gotten in, we've gone hard. (laughs) There's so much more to your story and there is so much more depth and richness. If you were to put some words together now with what we've spoken about here today that you want to share with our listeners, what would you like to say or what would you like them to know? What's sitting there for you after the conversation we've had today? I would definitely say, honor your yeses and nos. Be honest with yourself about what you need and want in your life. 
first so that you can then be honest with others. Because when you can honestly, like authentically honor what it is that you need and want, then, and start to take action in that direction, you're naturally going to align with the people that are meant to be in your life. You're naturally going to attract the things into your life that you're meant to have. And when you start to believe those things are possible, you start to say yes to things more openly. You start to set boundaries more solidly and you start to honor who it is you're meant to be while you're here on this earth existing in this life. And I think if I could take anything from my story, it's be authentic, be real and don't hold back. Yeah. And you know, that don't hold back. We can feel that. I I don't know if the listeners can, but I certainly, I like that energy is coming through loud and clear. Like you haven't held back. I don't know why that's even in your vocabulary. <laughs> But Jen, there is some some pretty exciting stuff though. Like you've got a book and you've got challenges coming up and people can work with you. And so let's just, just, just spend a few moments in that space. How do people find you? What have you got going on? Yeah, absolutely. We just started a new Instagram page for my book, Resilience. It's called Resilience, A Different Kind of Strong. And it is, so we've got Instagram, we've got a website, it's Unleashing Resilience. And when I... I really wanted to figure out a way to get my community involved with this book. So we just started, uh, we're going to launch a challenge October 18th. So that's when our first challenge is, and then we'll be running it multiple times after that, but it's a 28 day challenge where we're going to read a chapter a day. And mind you, these chapters are like two to four pages long because that's my attention span sometimes. And so I knew my readers might have the same attention span. And a lot of them have been asking me if I was going to do a book club or something like that. And so these challenges, I'm really excited to run this first one and see how it goes. We've already got over 30 people signed up. I just posted yesterday. So, you know, really probably expecting around a hundred people to sign up for this. And then once I learn how to manage all that, I'm really excited to be able to extend that and continue to grow that and build this and create these communities where people can learn how to become a different kind of strong. Yes. Yes. And I had this conversation with someone the other day around, cause I just ran a, a course, a six week course on resilience. And I was saying that I think sometimes people associate the word resilience with being strong, but I'm like, the strongest people I know have had the greatest adversity, but that means they've been at rock bottom or that means that they've had times in their lives where they haven't felt resilient. Like I think sometimes that word strong and resilient go together, but we don't realize that the strength isn't always shown as looking like you're strong. Absolutely. And that's why the subtitle of it is a different kind of strong. I wanted to become a different kind of strong. And there's been multiple times in my life where I've had to reevaluate what that looked like for myself. And at one time it looked like competing on fitness stages at one time. it I mean, it's looked like all kinds of different things. And each time I had to really connect and ask myself, is this it? And I think that that's what I mean by resilient is the ability to bounce back. You look at the resiliency of a rubber band or a bouncing ball. And you know, it's the ability to bounce back from those hard times because it's it's not about when you're at your peak performance. It's about when you're not. And what are you going to do then? I love to finish every episode with asking who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh. And Jen, I mean, you know, the belly laugh that is contagious, that has you on the ground that you think, oh, life is this joyous right now. I wasn't going to say this because I thought, oh, that's cruel. But it's really when people like hurt themselves or like they eat shit, right? Like people fall or like eat it on a bike or, I mean, I know that's terrible, but it's the truth. Like even thinking about right now, I'm giggling, you know, because it's like, it's terrible, but other people's misfortunes. No, I'm just kidding. But like, you know, like, cause I laugh when I fall. Right. And so it's just one of those things where I think if we don't laugh about it, we cry, right. You either laugh or cry. And I choose obviously extreme things to laugh about. So I 
I would say that that's, that's what I belly laugh over for sure. Guilty pleasure. <laughs> I just want to say thank you so much, Jen, for coming on because it is like trying to tell your story in an hour for most people is tough. But your story, I don't know how we managed to get all that out in an hour as much as we did. Like we covered a lot of ground and that is because you are so passionate about this. That is because you now have such an external lens on your experience in I went through this, how am I going to be able to help others with this? Like I can hear that as you talk consistently and I think that is how we've been able to have this massive conversation in an hour and so concise because of your passion and your determination and that part of you that still cares about others. Thank you so much for that. It, it really is other people, as much as I would like to say, I'm super independent now and I do this all just for, you know, I do this because the reason that I survived is to be able to share my story. The reason I survived and am going through, went through everything I went through is so that I get to be an example of what it looks like to choose life and to choose self and to, you know, really embrace what it is to be human and, and all the beauty and the ugliness that comes with that. Yeah. And it really is a story of thriving after surviving. But the thing that we didn't talk about, it might just be like, let's just spend two minutes here is that I'm sure shit still hits the fan. And I'm sure there are days that you cry. And I'm sure there are days that it feels like you're not going to get through it. Like when I say thriving from surviving, it's, it's not that it's not tough still. It's just that you have found a way to navigate your story and your challenges into something and integrate it into a world that you're now comfortable with. Well, the truth is, is I'm absolutely deep down. There's still a huge part of me. That's a people pleaser that wants to be a part of that needs, that needs absolutely thrives from being connected to others. I just had to realize what kind of people, the type of person that I wanted to be around. And I realized that it's people who draw me to be the best version of myself. And so I've made it a point and spent hundreds of thousands of dollars over the last 10 years to be a part of communities that help me up level. I mean, right now, I think this year I dropped 25 grand to be a part of the coaching community that I'm a part of all because I want to be surrounded by these women that see that part of me and hold her up and that also see the other parts of me and love them anyway. And and I, and I get to be around other incredible examples of movement leaders and thought leaders and coaches and authors and, and people who are giving back to their communities on an epic level, you know, and not to just throw this out there, but, you know, multiple six, seven figure business owners that I never, ever thought I would be in a room with, let alone collaborating with in business. And to be able to say that those are my friends, my true friends, women that love me and that I could call at any time. That is, to me, the true example of what it looks like to elevate yourself out of the dust, right? To really be reborn and to really choose to be as like the, just the best version of yourself is find other people who are trying to be the best version of themselves and glue yourself to them with super glue. <laughs> but also choosing how to spend your time and who you spend your time with. Like that, at, at the end of the day, Absolutely. that's what you're talking about. And it is so important, you know, if everyone just wants to take a moment and think about who they're spending time with and how they're spending their time. I mean, there's a lot to take away from this podcast, but that alone, just that simple one line is huge. So thank you so much, Jen. It's just been Oh, such a fabulous conversation today. You've been an amazing host and I'm super grateful to have been able to spend this time with you on opposite ends of the coast or end of the world, right? Yes. So it's been amazing. Thank you. Oh, what an amazing story. I, I get nervous when I use words like amazing. I think I said fabulous at the end because really there's a lot of heartache 
and a lot of pain that has gone into Jen's story. There is such, I use the word richness of experience and it is though truly incredible when you hear where she is now. And I love talking to people that have been through the shit and come out the other side, that have navigated a way that's right for them to find the life they want to live and find some contentment. And this is why I started this podcast way back in the beginning. I said, I wanted my girls to know that everyone has a story. I wanted my girls to know the stories that I'd heard in a counseling room or a therapy room that, that even the darkest of dark and the hardest of hard it doesn't have to stay like that and that we choose how we live our lives. We choose how we show up. We choose the attitude every single day and we choose who we spend time with. So take some time today to have a think about what are you going to choose and what attitude are you going to show up with? Otherwise, guys, I will see you all next Monday for our next beautiful, wonderful guest and I hope you all have a fantastic week. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.